broadcasting from a game of Chula at the second shop. This is Politrex. The Prime Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex, the show where we look at the socio-political happenings of today through the episodes, movies, and philosophy of Star Trek. Now, we're coming back from still some, some time off, and we have some pretty cool things headed down the pipe for you all, so thank you for your patience. My name is Barry DeFord, and with me is the often imitated, never replicated Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are things in your end of the quadrant, Mr. Avaru? Namaste, homo sapiens. I am happy to be back. It's not like ha- I haven't been doing podcasts because anybody listening to anything on Tricorder probably found me uh, on their shows and they're now just annoyed by my voice. So for those of you who are annoyed, hey, I'm still here, but we are here. Polytrex is still here. Just a lot of things have been happening, but uh, at least till the end of the year, I think you'll keep getting us more regularly. We have a, like Barry said, we have a lot more cool things planned and coming down the pipe. So just... Good stuff coming in overall, positive vibes. The news is going to be tough, but we'll get through it, I promise. We do promise. And uh, there are some um, some good things coming along as well. And uh, before we get to the news, how, Shashank, can our lovely listeners get a hold of us on the social medias? Uh, people can find us on at Polytrex on P- Twitter, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S on Twitter. That's the same name that you can find us under on Facebook also, I believe. You can definitely leave us a voicemail through the little speak pipe button on our website. That's tricordertransmissions.com slash polytrex. And you can also listen and leave us reviews on iTunes. We just landed on Spotify. You can leave us a review there. And you can also send us a Good old-fashioned tweet to either Barry or I. Barry, uh, how can people find you personally on Twitter, Barry? You can find me at B-J-O-R-N-D-E-F-J-O-R-D on Twitter. And yourself? G-U-T-T-E-R underscore H-E-R-O. That's how people can get in touch with us personally. But we are everywhere. Get, Get to us, reach us, find us, talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Absolutely. And, you know, if you are on our website, you can also check out almost 400 other episodes of the tricorder transmissions there's our supplemental logs reading track well you will definitely find the uh, uh my illustrious co-host you'll find drawing treks trek ranks trek profiles disco trek shore leave the original mission weekly trek where again you're just going to see even more of shashank which is awesome and announcing our new newest show queer trek we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet since its inception i was very very honored to be able to create the music for it so if you notice a similarity to polytrex's music to queer treks then uh, that's because of me so that's pretty neat i was very very honored to listen to it that's the <laughs> that's the contribution that i brought in but it's uh, it's a beautiful uh, not not a lot of people hear this from podcasts, but I, I truly believe it's one of those podcasts that can change people's lives. Uh, it can bring out uh, representation and a way to identify yourself and find your peace and your your world through Star Trek. So uh, what I think what we do here is very powerful. I think what they do at Queer Trek is even more powerful because there is, there is something very... Uh, 
life-changing, as I said, and affirming in, in a lot of ways when people just sit down and talk about, you know, this is my sexual identity and this is how I found it through Star Trek. Yeah. Just beautiful stuff. Absolutely. And so if you do like any of these shows and you want to support the network for as little as a dollar a month, you'll get early access to all of our shows on the network. You'll get a chance to participate in hangouts with hosts. You can get swag. And of course, our eternal love for supporting this work that we love to send out uh, into the ether of the interwebs. So it may be a dollar, but it's locks in our hearts. The uh, Patreon button is also at the top right side, and so you can just tickle that. It's sort of orange. And uh, if you do have that extra quat loose to send us, it'd be fantastic. So well, I think with that, let's move on to the news. Welcome back to the news, everyone. News broke out just not too long ago that through a New York Times report, it's it's being reported that the Trump administration might try to redefine gender and take the previously assigned transgender definition out of existence. Lots of thoughts here. Uh, lots of Star Trek parallels for sure. But uh, Barry, what, what are your initial thoughts on this? What What jumped out at you? Well, it's it's what they're saying, right? It's their the actual quote from the proposal. It says that sex means a person's status as a male or female is based on immutable biological traits identifiable before birth. The sex listed on a person's birth certificate as originally issued shall constitute definitive proof of a person's sex unless rebutted by reliable genetic evidence. This is an invasive, terrible, um, dehumanizing sort of thing. We have to remember that this has been an issue for transgendered people for a very long time in Western society. And under no administration before the, um, the Trump uh, and Obama administration had this really come up in a, in a real big way for advancing rights. I mean, even if you look back at the way some trans be, transgendered people have been portrayed in, in pop culture, it's never been good. And I, I applaud Star Trek for their times that they've looked at things, you know, where Riker has fallen in love with a, um, you know, a gender neutral individual, you know, this has happened. Uh, Data's, um, Data's offspring, of course, gets to pick uh, what gender and sex it would prefer to be. You know, this is not anything new to Star Trek. And I think they've tried as best as they possibly could, given the time that they have. But we made some real big headway under the Obama administration. And in my country, it's still uh, again, an issue that's moving forward, but uh, slowly, and it just shows you how quickly things can change if you get the right group of people, or in this case, the wrong group of people in power. Just before we get into the Star Trek of it, I wanted to give our listeners some historical context on this. So there have been rights being given to transgender people piece by piece in the years. The first one that I could find is uh, Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex by an employer with 15 or more employees. Again, that's a problem for uh, places where there are less than 15 people, uh, but that's a different discussion altogether. But the landmark decision came in in 2012 when the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, ruled that discriminating against someone because that person is transgender is discrimination based on sex, which violates Title VII. So, 
that's that seems to be the hallmark definition or the hallmark decision that seemed to have turned things around for uh, transgender people here in the United States. Uh, by doing this, I think they're they're trying to do it as the article reports in two ways. They're going to do it from the education department. Uh, which would deal with complaints of sex discrimination at schools and colleges receiving financial assistance, and the other is from health and human services. So long story short, uh, TLDR version, the administration will try to not let these kids go to schools, and they'll not let them get any kind of health care, uh, at least government-funded health care. So if you don't go to school and you're sick and you don't get your health care, that's a good way to to eliminate a, a big sect of the population. It's uh, it's It goes back historically. The first thing that jumps to me is uh, the Nazi party trying to redefine citizens and remove the definition of Jews as people and uh, just so many things there. But the biggest example within Star Trek to me when I read this first is Odo. When uh, the Dominion War was starting, People within themselves did not fight immediately. The the infighting did not begin until people realized Odo is one of the enemy. And they did their best over and over to try to get Odo out. Like they tried to take Odo out literally. They tried to uh, remove Odo from existence within the confines of Starfleet, and people genuinely had trouble even seeing Odo as one of theirs, even though this was someone who, for their entire existence, had lived a life as part of uh, as part of the larger organization of the Bajorans and the Cardassians, and then Starfleet. So, just lot of lot of information there. I didn't mean to throw all of that out at once. Just uh, heartbreaking and and tragic but uh what 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 are what are you thinking buddy well um i you know i mean i said quite a bit kind of at the start there but just just to kind of respond to you i think the one thing about odo is you know as he's trying to find his his inborn nature um he's he's being able to explore that a little more freely than i think people who are questioning their gender or don't find themselves aligning to any specific gender norm or binary and when when we say at the beginning of the show, welcome everyone to Politrex, we mean ladies, gentlemen, non-binary folk, everyone. Whatever your inborn nature is concerning your identity and gender, it matters and we support it. But I mean, this really wasn't the case even until the landmark, um, the landmark um, piece of legislation by Obama. So in that respect... I think, you know, we're just we're just moving into an area where these human beings are going to be able to express themselves in ways that really truly express who they are as individuals. And I'm just so blown away that here we are, you know, we're 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 just on the precipice of getting into normalization and giving these people a real chance to be themselves and now it's getting possibly taken away so quickly. You know, I kind of mentioned the outcast earlier where Riker falls in love with uh, Soren on uh, her home planet and it's kind of the opposite right she's not supposed to show any feminine traits and i'm using she because it seems like that's how she wants to identify herself and she gets into a lot of hot water for it so i feel like it's kind of a a mirror image that tng tried to do with it but i don't know maybe this could be a conversation for the wonderful new show queer trek that i think this is star trek's call to action to really push this forward and i don't know if they already have it planned in season two of discovery or maybe in the new picard series but I would love to see a non-binary or 
uh, a, a captain who maybe is of a specific sex, but identifies as a different gender and doesn't want to go through what could probably be very easy surgery in the 24th century, but chooses to display his or her gender and sexuality and humanity in a very importantly individual way. Just uh, one more thing before we get out of this. I To talk about the Star Trek of it all, I think if the next generation, as a show was being made today, I think they would have definitely made more of an effort to make Data a non-binary character. Yeah, I agree. Or better yet, Tasha Yar as a non-binary character, because there are those are characters whose, you know, the entire reason why Dennis Crosby left is because of an episode like Code of Honor, where a character who clearly does not want to be defined by her sexuality is forced to come to terms with that in that episode. But yeah. just so so much discussion there. It's it's heartbreaking. It's tragic, and uh, we'll keep you we'll keep you updated. But speaking of call to action, elections are coming up. Uh, here in the U.S., the midterms are just around the corner. Uh, just a lot, lot, lot. I have been hearing about it from every nook and corner of the news. Have uh, what? What have you been hearing, Barry? Well, it's as loud as it can be, and I'm I'm several several hours north of the 49th parallel. So yeah, I guess it's uh, it's time to vote uh, for for you folks. And <laughs> I guess part of me is I, I just feel a little bit cynical right now about the whole the whole meal deal because you look at the way some of these states are gerrymandered and stuff like that, and it's no difference here in Canada. But I think we need to really start thinking about making sure that we vote as much as we possibly can, but I think also creating places of dual power. And I think you know, to, to give that to give that a bit of a better understanding, you can create community on your very own, and maybe create some distance and some space between this oppressive force that is now running the country and um, and yourself. I mean, I'm not saying break the law or anything like that, but uh, know know the laws and and that sort of stuff. So my fear is that this vote's going to come through and it's going to rile up some people in in ways that we may not want. Or it could foment more power for for the people who are trying to ruin the lives of transgender people. If you have ever been inspired by anything in Star Trek, a line, a scene, a turn of events, no matter what it is, remember that all of that came from action. It came from, within the world, it came from a character standing up and deciding this needs to be done. And out of the world, it came from writers and producers and directors and actors getting together, getting off their butts and making this come to reality. If that has inspired you, if you have felt affected by it, if you have felt changed by it, then please go out and vote. I don't care who you vote for. If if you are someone who believes that the way the current administration is running is right, I don't know why you're still listening. That would be weird. But... Uh, <laughs> But if if you are one of those people, by all means, go go and vote. But do not give up that right. Do not sit back and and watch people vote. Take, do your vote for you. If if you do that, what happened in 2016 will happen again. What happened uh, to a lesser degree in 2014 and 2012 with the midterms will happen again. And just if you do not like the policies, vote these people out. No matter where you are, no matter. Uh, no matter what scenario are you in, you need to make time to go out and vote. I cannot vote. I am not a citizen of this country, and it's something that I hope to change one day because that I I really miss having that power. And uh, if if you have it, 
please, if you're not going to vote for yourself, go out and vote for me and make sure you live up to the legacy that Star Trek left behind by taking that call to action. And, and remember that Star Trek is all about people working together. And that's super important because Kirk doesn't get anywhere without his crew, right? Dr. Crusher can't make things happen without her personal staff and making sure she knows that the people on the bridge have her back. These are these are things that, that click through the entire series, each and every one of them. I mean, th- I would honestly say that Though I would like to see more of the characters of Discovery doing stuff, they definitely play very important roles and they're relied on. So know that you can rely on each other too. And maybe back to that transgendered thing, if the Trump administration gains more power and they try to push this draconian law forward and they manage to do it legally, I guess, through the state, I at this point don't even recognize its authority to do it. So (laughs) in that case as well, people can also vote with their feet. And maybe that's what needs to happen, too. Well, there is some more positive news. And uh, unsurprisingly, this positive piece of news comes from our neighbors up north, where uh, one of my favorite people in the world lives. Barry DeFord, what is going on in your country, man? As of October the 17th, Canada has legalized small usage, recreational usage of the plant marijuana, which is... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's radical, dude. <laughs> now, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you were not expecting that, were you? No, no, I definitely wasn't. I'm kind of freaked out now. <laughs> Wait, what were we talking about? I'm just kidding. Anyway, Everything's no, so meaningless, man. No, meaningful. Everything is meaningful. No, it's great. I think Canada... I don't know how pot people talk like I don't smoke pot, but oh. congratulations. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's it's an it's a nifty thing. I'm I'm glad that the that this has happened, and my hope is is also, and this is sort of an extra little bit. Is I think anyone who's been caught with a bud in their pocket, and I know of friends who have been caught with like the remnants of parts of a marijuana leaf in their plant or in their in their pants, and they've ended up having to spend the night in jail. They've had to get a criminal record. I think that all those records should be uh, scrubbed clean because I don't really think that's a thing that's necessarily that important personally, not, not being myself who's ever been caught or anything like that, but just empathetic for the people who I know who do have ridiculously stupid little records for having something that really is pretty darn harmless. So yeah, I hope they take that little extra step further and keep keep moving in that in that positive direction of treating people and the mental health issues and you know the needs and health of a human being rather than just punishing them for usually trying to medicate away from past traumas or stresses and and stuff like that so it's a good step in the right direction there is a really really cool set of theories that that suggests that all religion came from uh, our ancient peoples who just sat down in different parts of the world and took natural drugs and everything they saw were hallucinations like if <laughs> if you don't i know it sounds outlandish no it i doesn't, know uh it doesn't at all i mean really just listen to any song ever on the radio yeah. and that person was probably high i think that was Bex, uh, the comedian who said that originally he's like anyone if you like any music at all the people who had it really stupid high uh, yeah, that's the that's the intro, by the way. Piece of trivia to Third Eye by Tool. Uh, uh, just right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice, nice catch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but serious, seriously, if even if you believe one percent of that, 
there should be nobody in jail right now for non-violent drug offenses. Like if, in Star Trek, yeah, in Star Trek, if the Cardassians can commit genocide over Bajor and then come back and try to live in some sort of harmony with them, and our st- people in Star Trek are over- willing to overlook that, surely people who had a few pieces of leaves should not be allowed to spend their their uh, lives in jails. That just does not make sense to me. Uh, and this is a great first step, but I hope Canada paves the way and it releases all their non-violent drug offenders. Because if if you are that person who's right now sitting in a jail cell for something that is now legal, that's that must be the most heartbreaking thing in the world for that person, their family, the their community, and just humanity in general. What does it mean when you say, oh, remember this thing that we thought was illegal? Never mind, it's legal now. And then, you know, oh, yeah. we let them we, we let them be in in jails. It's just, it does not make sense to me. And Even Pat Stewart, right? Sir Patrick Stewart, he uses marijuana to alleviate his arthritis pain. And he's become a not very vocal, but vocal enough proponent for the use of it to help with epilepsy and other other conditions where marijuana has shown that in in moderated use can alleviate pain, discomfort and and keep a person feeling a little bit better, especially, you know, like cancer treatment. It can help you with getting your um, getting your appetite back and stuff like that. And it does. I mean, like it, it's a it's a it's a substance that, if used responsibly, don't operate heavy machinery. Make sure you know your limits if you are going to try it, and you live in a country or state where it is legal. Then make sure you know you've got someone with you or someone knows where you are. You know those sorts of things. You can have more fun with it than than not. And and I think you know personally, it's a it's a fine thing to have legal and to try on a weekend if you're again with people you know people with you who with whom you trust you know you're not uh, you're not going to do anything crazy or stupid i mean there's so many people who die driving with alcohol and stuff like that so we don't want to turn that into a thing but uh, as far as i know it's been so far so good i haven't seen uh, i mean nothing's on fire when i look out my window and I, i'm i'm happy for it and and i'm glad that we've got star trek people who are happy for it too i have two questions for you Barry deford one is sure. a, one is a serious question and that is how high do you think riker was when he wore that shirtless weird outfit with that weird earring on his on his ear and he went down to that planet to seduce those women because there's no way you're not high when you do that. Well, that's the thing. You never see people in Star Trek really doing any kind of recreational drug. Mostly they just drink. And again, I wonder if TNG was, was you know, now, if that would be a thing. Or if we will see people using some kind of recreational drug other than uh, sort of what we understand is just alcohol, just drinking stuff. I wonder if we will see something like that in the future. That would be interesting. That leads me to my second question, which I promise is the really serious question. What do you think Starfleet says about people using drugs on the job? Like maybe not something like cocaine, but do you think for humanoid species it was okay in Starfleet to just, does their food have, does their applicator have marijuana? Does it produce it for them? Oh no! Uh, it's a genuine question. Uh, maybe I am an idiot, and I shouldn't. <laughs> I just, I just love like like a the next, the next iteration of of Picard as he's somewhere. You know, instead of going Earl Grey hot, he's just like Genghis Khan, <laughs> extra sticky. 
But if you if you think about it seriously, if somebody wants to take it, I'm I'm sure everybody on Raisa is high. There is no way Raisa is not. Ah, uh, people are high and they're just having the time of their lives paradise. Like that that does not make sense to me. Uh, and realistically, do you think Starfleet has anything against that? Like if I wanted if if Will Crusher is uh, having a really tough time breaking down a test, do you think he just takes a hit of the Jane and then just uh, goes and tops that test. Just a lot of interesting questions. I know you don't have the answers, Mari, and I know I just sprung that uh, sprung that on you. But hey, maybe it's an episode. You know, yeah, uh, what about, if about we, Green Trek or something, right? You know, who, yeah, what are, uh, what are, we could. What are people doing to make the make their lives a little bit uh, more livable after the stresses of interstellar travel? But I, I don't know. I I, I guess like for me, it's kind of like. If I was to have a evening where I would enjoy this legal substance, or even just other legal substances like a like a drink or two, uh, I would I wouldn't want to be manning like the con or ops or commanding a ship or anything like that. Uh, that that just seems like a bad idea. But you have to agree, at least on Enterprise, that dilithium core structure that keeps going up and down with the lights that that is definitely something that's awesome for when you're high. <laughs> yeah just whoom whom yeah come on that's yeah. that's made for people who are high i, just yeah, I can the, just I'd imagine the colors, the colors of yeah. the tos of the tos bridge and like their their hallways and everything like that i mean that's definitely a uh some kind of fever dream oh yeah i imagine bill and ted just being high and watching those lights flicker up and down oh my god man uh <laughs> anyway we have gotten off topic uh, but speaking of topics, we have a wonderful topic today, don't we? We have a wonderful conversation. And it's one of those happy conversations Shashank had mentioned before we started recording that it was a happy conversation that became an episode. So we're really looking forward to it. And it's a part of our DS925 series. And we hope you enjoy it. back everyone to our main topic today uh, we will be continuing our section 25 series barry and i realized that as the years are winding down we will never have another ds9 25th anniversary again so we are going to make the ractagino while the sun shines and get as many lists of 25s that we can in there and continuing that in no particular order today is 25 things we love about ds9 uh, obviously, we're do, we're going to do our best to bring in a political and a social angle. But if this this list is also not like I said earlier, in any order, it's just twenty five things we love. Number one could be the most ridiculous thing that we love, and number twenty five could be the most important thing that we love. It's just making a list so we can talk about DS nine some more. We uh, as if we don't do that enough on this show, Barry. Uh, what do you think, Barry? You ready to get start? Get this started? Oh, I'm super excited for this. And and you're right. You know, like it's so funny how we we came up with this idea just at the start of our whole podcast idea altogether. And 
now it's October and yeah, no time flies. So I'm fully, fully cool with DS9 heavy end of the year. Yeah. Uh, by the end of this year, I think people will be tuning into the Christmas show and they'll be, they'll find us celebrating. Uh, what's the day on, on DS9? The, the space, I forget the name of the day, but the day that they have, they all have joy to you and to you. Oh, right. That one. I forget that day, but I know what you're talking. Yeah. That'll be our Christmas. That's how deeply we will be in DS9. People who've, uh, who are listening and hate us for not knowing that day, make sure you yell at us on Twitter. Please do. We, we, need, we need to be yelled at more. <laughs> we need to be put in our place a lot more. I mean, I'm getting away with murder here. So, <laughs> Shashank, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was, for I think both of us, very much a formative thing. And I feel like, I feel like it's a different series than when I watched it originally and each time I watch it and I do have these like year long rewatches of deep space nine and I'm always finding something else that I love. And that's always a really great thing because some of the things that I found out that I love about deep space nine, I watched in just my last rewatch. And I mean, that's like rewatch number 14 or something like that. So getting the opportunity to do this, dear listener, Shashank and I both came up with 25 things, meaning it was going to be 50. So we're actually only doing, um, half of that each. So this is a, also a bit of a, a labor of which one do we like the most. So there could be some repeats here. and That'd be interesting. Of course, there won't be any guns firing or anything like that because this isn't a countdown or a list from best to worst. These are all just great things. So Shashank, what's your 25th? What's the 25th wonderful thing that you love about Deep Space Nine? Well, well said. Before we get there, that festival is called the Gratitude Festival. So there you go. I Googled it. I found it out. I did it. I'm proud of myself. I stalled while you Googled it. This is <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, that's why you're co-host, man. That's why the show works, I think. My 25th most favorite thing about Star Trek, uh, and again, no particular order, just a 25th that I wanted to throw out. It's the most obvious, or maybe not the most obvious from a poly Trek show. I love how political Deep Space Nine is. I love the politics. I love the... I love the cultural references. I love the metaphors for uh, real world politics. I love that the biggest, most overarching thread in the entire show is a political crisis. It's two peoples from different ends of the universe trying to coexist and one trying to win over another and letting everything get in the way because of that. So my 25th most favorite thing about DS9 I love how political it is. I agree. And I think that the politicalness of Deep Space Nine, I mean, they knew that kind of walking in, right? Because like Star Trek originally here we are having, and I think I'm quoting one of the people on the Deep Space Nine panel from STLD when they're like, you know, Star Trek was to be the wagon train in the stars, right? And Deep Space Nine is, if we go by that Western motif, then Deep Space Nine is, you know, the last outpost on the frontier, you know, and that of course has its sort of political and sociological issues there as well, because the people who are out on the frontier back in those way olden days were on someone else's land at the time. But it's an interesting thing in that sense too, because also the Federation is putting themselves, they're literally like plopping themselves into the middle of this diplomatic a dispute that's already started over a post-occupation and a brand new way to get from one side of the galaxy to the next instantaneously. So you're absolutely right. I think this whole show was primed to be political from the start. And that's what makes it so great, or one of the 25 things that makes it so great. Barry, what is the 
number 24 on our list? Well, number 24 really should be number one, but I just can't wait that long. I want to talk about it now because it's the most important thing for me. It's, it is the father and son relationship between Jake and, uh, Jake and Cisco. When you see the the true genuine nurturing love you know when when he walks into their quarters cisco looks at his son and says hey jaco and it's just that casual father son i would die for you sort of thing and i'm not a father and i i had to find a lot of father figures but when i see that that father-son relationship it really does just give me a a sense of what it means to be a man and it isn't anything macho it isn't anything you know highfalutin in any way benjamin cisco never has to prove to anyone the type of man he is because he just is that man and the way he nurtures and loves and shows affection towards his son and supports him to the point that he lets his son stay behind on an occupied deep space nine uh, during the dominion war just shows the type of father that that benjamin is and i it, it will never ever cease to bring a great deal of emotion to my heart to see that beautiful relationship between father and son i think it was at one of the panels at stlv in which we got to see a video clip from what we left behind it's a fan interaction between avery brooks and a young girl who asks him what is your favorite mission on the show, on the show Deep Space Nine. And without even taking a beat, he just bends down, sits on one knee to get to her height, and he says, my favorite mission on the show is raising my son. There is something so beautiful. And at the core of Deep Space Nine, the, even the show starts off within the first few minutes. That's the relationship that we really see for the first time, is that father and son relationship. And one of the best things about the show is that there are so many episodes that you can actually go back and enjoy this relationship on. The Visitor, of course, but I think one that is often underrated and doesn't get talked about as much is Explorers. I think Explorers is a really good father-son episode. You remember Explorers, Barry? The one with uh, the star sale? I just just watched it the other day. Yeah. That's a really good relationship, and that's a great thing to point out. I'm, I'm glad our, uh, our list is only getting better with, with picks as they go on. Well, number 23 on the list, and this is just, I, I'm sorry, I'm just a nerd about the Terran Empire, so I have to say it. Number 23 is how good the Mirror Universe episodes are on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't imagine what, um, what the series would be actually without it. Those are, those are good little, little, little escapades that they take. There is something so powerful about uh, even the the mirrors of the characters like one thing that i don't think is often noticed is that kira is the oppressed in the prime universe most of the time she's she's a character that comes from literally an oppressed planet but in mirror in the mirror universe we get to see the exact opposite of her she's the oppressor in that universe like there are so many interesting parallels and you see how quark is pretty much the same guy and then you see you you get to see a really cool pirate version of Benjamin Cisco. It's like he's not on Deep Space Nine anymore. He's the, he's like a like a guy just running around trying to get the best out of everyone, like a like a one man pirate. He's almost like Jack Sparrow in that show. If like from some of the things that he has to do to manipulate and get his way, just every character relationship is interesting, and it builds up the mythology so well. You find out more about the Mirror Universe. 
you get that little nod to Kirk and what happened there. And uh, even the, the Terak nod that we get to see and all the characters that we get to see, the costumes we, we get to see, the various sets on the Mirror Universe episodes, they really transport us and take us into a beautiful world. So, yep, that's number 23. I fully agree. I've never had any trouble rewatching any of the Mirror episodes. The only thing that always kind of got me about the Mirror episodes, and this is extremely like minute, was um, Vic Fontaine shows up, not a hologram, and just gets shot up a whole bunch, which always kind of like made me wonder if Jimmy Darren was just like, I always wanted to go down in a hail of gunfire. And he just, just there, and Ira Bear is just like, yeah, we can probably make that happen, and then and then that's just what they did for that episode. I, I, I this is going to come up maybe a little bit later on, but this is something that um, is going to come back. Yeah, this is going to really come back a lot. And uh, what I'm really getting at is the writers are just always having so much fun with this TV show. And you can see very much them getting to kind of finger paint a little bit more with the Mirror Universe. And yeah, it was just great to see those those characters get to kind of let loose a little bit. Speaking of later on, Barry, what is number 22 on our list? Oh, man. Well, if if Jake and Cisco are sort of the big piece for me, then then the next the next biggest is watching a, a revolutionary have to exist in a non revolutionary world. And it's Kira just the way she has to change herself and and the struggle that she goes through from stem to stern, like, she starts as a former Bajoran freedom fighter against the Cardassians, and she ends the series in a Starfleet uniform, right? She went from ragtag, you know, guerrilla guerrilla warfare, you know, attack, attack and, and, and disappear kind of sort of stuff to being a adjunct, like, representative of the Federation in a uniform. And I mean, not to mention, she's also helping liberate Cardassia using similar tactics to what she used in the past. And so watching that entire arc, you could watch the entire series and forget about every other character except for just Kira. And you would still have a very good time with that, with, with the entire Deep Space Nine series. It could have just been about her. And they had so much more, so much more robust. I don't often say this, but I'm actually glad that in a way we got to not see the Rolaren side of the story. For those of you not in the know, originally that character was going to be Rolaren. And she was going to come back as a regular, but the actress playing it, she decided not to do it. She, I believe she had other commitments at the time. So they were forced to come up with a new character that pretty much had a similar arc, but not exactly something that went along those same lines. So I'm glad that out of that challenge, Kira was born. And you get to see this incredible character, not just integrate into the the Starfleet of it all, but you get to see her struggle. You get There is a real powerful emotional struggle there you get to see it when she is dealing with Riker you get to see it when she has to go back to planets and find her old friends who are trying to enlist her into the Maquis you you also get to see how it it is something that ties into a religion and as someone who doesn't identify with a majority of the political parties, this really speaks to you, doesn't it, Barry? You know, it absolutely does, and that's that is a funny sort of thought because I'm I'm you know not not much of a revolutionary by any stretch of the imagination. I I read and I teach and, and stuff like that, but it does make me sort of think of 
revolutionaries like Che Guevara after the Cuban Revolution, or you know some of the people who would have fought for for the Chinese Revolution and then the fomentation of power, or even even being say someone who who had to fight clandestinely against the Germans in France or or in in Italy or something like that or or anywhere, and just sort of having then to go back to a, a, a different type of normal or to an order. And, and was that what you were really looking for? So yeah, no, it, it definitely does cut, cut very close for me. But what's more important to me right now is what is number 22? Good transition. I, I like it. And uh, number 22 also has to do with a number in a weird way. And it, it is a number that ties into the overall theme of the series that we've been doing. Number 22 for me is the introduction of Section 31. I love that uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine peered into the workings of Starfleet. And they actually showed us, up until this point, the Starfleet that we have come to accept is imperfect, yes, but ultimately, it's a good guy organization. It's full of people who you'd imagine have their own versions of, you know, we need to get things done the right way and we everybody needs to be taken care of. That is the understanding that you have. But if you're a Deep Space Nine viewer back in the 90s following the thread along and you find out that there is a secret organization that has been doing the Starfleet folks' dirty work so they can put up this veneer of idealism and prime directive. I'm not saying Section 31 is completely over Starfleet and that they have pretty much taken it over. But it's very interesting that they found a way to show that in the real world, this is how governments work, is they put up an a veneer, or put up a mask, but underneath there are people doing the dirty work. And for those of you who are interested, you can go back and listen to our Section 31 episode that we did about spies in our star society. But that's 22 for me, buddy. Section 31. And again, yeah, twenty-two. What a what a great what a great choice, right? Section thirty-one, of course. Okay, let's let's be let's be serious and just call the Federation Space America, right? Because that's kind of what it sort of is. So you know, if you looked at our at Space America in the nineteen sixties, the closest they come to talking about anyone secret servicey is Gary Seven in Assignment Earth. But by the time 1998 rolls around, we know actually that the FBI was involved, their Secret Service was involved in in terrible stuff like COINTELPRO and you know what they had done to you know different different places like in in El Salvador helping out the United Fruit Company or what happened in Chile in 1973 or the whole Iran Contra scandal and stuff like that. You start seeing this darker underbelly of what the secret service is doing to keep its country keeping that sort of veneer of security and safety. And I think in a lot of cases, what deep space nine does is it exposes that veneer of the Federation on so many levels, rather than just having a bad moral, like there used to be often in, in different movies and stuff like that with star Trek. Now we have this darker undefinable enemy within the Federation itself. And that they almost sort of replaced the Borg, right? I mean, TNG, I'd say the coolest villain they came up with was the Borg. And I would say Deep Space Nine, that would then be the, the, the Section 31, because they retconned the crap out of that afterward, right? Absolutely. Well said. Great points. Uh, I'm glad you're, you're on board with this one, but 
again, and if people are interested, please go back and listen to our Spies in Art Society. We definitely get a lot deeper into Section 31. Speaking of one, what's what's 21 on the list? Again, also, we are now having a uh, segue off, which I'm fully, fully supportive of. But I also have to ask, can we disagree with each other? This might be really fun. If I'm like, no, of that, course. Does, that doesn't belong on the list, Shashank. Try again. And then you just try to explain yourself and I just keep repeating, try again. Try again. No, that would be mean. I, I think I function best when I'm in the position of an underdog. So yes, if you find something on the list or just to, you know, mess with me, do it, man. I'm more than happy to defend it. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you too, buddy. This was a segue to end all segues. Number 21 is this bromance from ours. Bashir and O'Brien are a wonderful couple. They start off kind of throwing shade in each other's direction until they kind of have their moment. And then, then they just spend all of this time playing together. Like they, they, they literally go and play pretend on the holodeck and there's something boyish about it. And again, deep space nine takes masculinity in so many wonderful directions because it shows the, the nice side of proper non-toxic masculinity. And, and that, that, agape love exists in femininity and masculinity and and it does you know we can talk a bit about gen gender and stuff later in another one of the numbers i have for deep space nine but when you see bashir and o'brien interacting with each other their love is is again something just very real in and it's so beautiful and it's sweet and they just play and they get to be boys sometimes and i really like that it's it's also very interesting how they chose Really, the two polar opposite characters on the show, they couldn't be they couldn't be more away from each other on on the space station. It's a guy who works inside a clinic and then it's a guy who works at the underbelly inside machines and in Jeffy tubes. Well, they're both I like doctors. They, they are absolutely doctors. And uh, I think in a way that that connects them, that connects them. I think the fact that uh, there are opposites in there also, like for, for one, Bashir can never settle down with a woman. And O'Brien seems to have settled down, but he, he keeps having his uh, conflicts while Keiko is away. He keeps having his conflicts while they fight. And in a weird way, they can be there for each other that way too. Uh, they're they're girlfriends that way, and I say that in the best possible way of the word. They're like women do when they when they get together and they support each other. They the the show showed that side of them, and it did not hesitate to do that. Plus, I really really dig uh, that when they go to the holodeck, <laughs> Bashir becomes the James Bond, and O'Brien becomes the eye patch wearing villain, which is just hilarious to me. I could never get over that. I always liked it when they were bomber bomber pilots and they came out and they're all gussied up in their <laughs> second world war fighter, fighter suits and you're just like, what is happening? And I feel very much that once we perfect holodeck technology, that's what you and I will do. That's a, that's of course, our, uh, those are our first two holodeck experiences. But if you take that bromance seat, a little seriously too, the the relationship ha- takes its toll, especially in episodes like Hippocratic Oath, when they both fundamentally disagree on how the Jem'Hadar should be treated. And the, in spite of that, that friendship gets stronger as the show goes on, because they have such strong identities. And even, even though they fight it out, and they often disagree, that they can be friends, and they can be supportive, they can be vulnerable, and they can be strong, that you get to see that is is beautiful i think uh, deep space 9 allows you to really be anyone it it allows you to 
it, it gives you the power of being yourself. And that is my segue into number 20. Number 20 for me is uh, that Deep Space Nine really celebrates identity. It celebrates that Jadzia was a man in her former life. So it shows that she can kiss a woman. Uh, This is in the late 90s when things are burning up, especially for... American viewers, the the whole idea of showing homosexuality is a touchy topic, but on a bigger scale, it shows that Nog can be in Starfleet. It shows that Rom can become an engineer. It shows that Odo can be human. It shows that it does not matter where you start. It matters where you finish. It matters what you aspire to, and it matters that you pursue that goal truly and with an undying sense of sincerity and love. And when you get there, you will be celebrated for it. As someone who was not from the West, but always wanted to live here, I can relate to that so much that there is a show out there that shows me that it does not matter where I start, it matters where I finish. It's hard, it's hard to build on that because you basically hit all the all the points of, of a lot of what I want to... We might, we might be repeating ourselves a little bit in the future here because I think, yeah, Deep Space Nine normalizes more than more than the other shows did right like you think of kirk and uhura's kiss right there is a bit there there are still a lot of caveats kind of put around it and though i think there are still some caveats put around some of the things they try in deep space nine and and we get some you know probably the network was like oi 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 don't do that you know or be a little less on that or or something like that especially you know looking at say the possibility of making Garrick and Bashir a, a love interest with each other right that would have that would have been a thing had it have been approved of i think and the amount of the amount of twisting and gymnastics they had to do to make Jedzia be able to kiss her former her former lover though I agree with you that it, it made a lot of sense and it was good that they did it, they still had to kind of thread it through the eye of a needle to a degree. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate I appreciate how much Deep Space Nine was able to normalize, though, and you're right, with, with the points you made. Great points, Barry. What's number 19? Well, I'm not one to hit on 19, so... This is this is where I need to put it because of course if you go any further 21's far too close and the odds just aren't in your favor. Of course I'm much better at Dabo. And that of course is Mr. Quark and his lovely little pastiche of capitalism that he threads into the Federation and into Deep Space 9 cuz he was there first. The Federation would have never let him be there had this have been their station to begin with. And so it is a really neat way to watch how characters in a post-capitalistic society watch and interact with someone who lives within a capitalistic society and it becomes almost cultural. And on a couple of levels I find that entertaining, amusing, and troubling, but it was always interesting watching Quark and the way he speaks, and to a degree, there has to be a bit of thumbing one's nose or perhaps a critique of the current, more corrupt version of capitalism that exists, and maybe that's its default. I'm I'm not to say one way or another, I guess. Uh, I have my opinions, but anyways, it's always entertaining to watch Quark talk about capitalism as if it's a virtue. And you know that everyone knows that this is meant to be funny. And that's just always an interesting, very light. It's not a bonk bonk on the head. It's definitely a tap tap on the shoulder. One of the coolest things about DS9 is that it approaches a lot of serious subjects by 
immersing it in humor one prime example is of yes the ferengi's quark specifically when he talks about things like capitalism and he he celebrates how much he is mooching off of people and it's it's also while funny if you sit down and think about it in spite of it being a post scarcity society in which something like capitalism you think wouldn't even need to exist for that station to function they needed that bar they needed that bar it, they needed that competing bar they needed the restaurants they needed a lot of these capitalist places so people could go spend their money and and have a good time so i i i wonder often if in spite of that post scarcity if we needed that kind of capitalist institutions if we need people like quark sitting in that bar giving us watered down drinks so the the society in itself can survive if deep space 9 is a metaphor uh for the way the world works definitely our station itself is a metaphor for the melting pot and it's a metaphor for people of different ideologies and from pe- people from all over coming and living together and i often wonder if no matter how good or how bad things are if we need that capitalism to survive i would say we don't but I understand where you're coming from in terms of how thy diversity makes strength. But I would say that that had Quark have gotten his way, he would have done what every capitalist tries to do and become the only game in town. And that was one of his biggest problems. And so that's sort of an interesting way of looking at it because the the competition isn't a problem. But when you start getting these underhanded methods and stuff, that's where I find Quark's actions to be sort of a very light tap tap on the shoulder that deep space nine does but enough about me i'm going to give you the next one for 17.99 and you can round up to number 18 if you'd like <laughs> uh, you're killing it with the segues today man i don't know if i can keep up god knows i'm going to try but my number 18 is gal to cart i i wanted to come up with a cool introduction i wanted to come up with a really cool weird deep watch where i start talking like gal dukar with see but that's the worst gal dukar impression so i'm just going to say number 18 is uh, and this might be a confession that i don't know if many people have heard me say anywhere on the air so here goes i think gal dukar is the best star trek villain and i am so glad that deep space nine gave me gal dukar it gave me a villain that i fell in love with a villain that in spite of the horrible unforgivable things that he did i was so forced to see his point of view and that's where the best villains come from in all of fiction is when you read about them and you know how terrible they are when you know the things they're doing so bad but and yet you can't help but break down when they're crying over their dead daughter and you can't help but smile with them when he is is making a really funny smart point while trying to one up Cisco just Galdukart is amazing he's an incredible villain and he's he he is the best villain not because he is you know a really strong powerful character but because the show makes sure no matter how rigid you are in your opinion you are forced to empathize with someone like Galdukart and try to understand that point of view so number 18 Galdukart I agree again. This is more difficult than I thought to disagree about certain things. You and I have too much in common. But I would say Galdicott and Q are interesting because they are both sort of a prime 
antagonist in either of either of the series's arcs. And when you look at it, though, every good villain needs to be a foil, and every good foil needs to have some villainous qualities, or at least antagonistic qualities, towards the main character. And when we look at Picard, Cisco, and their connections and their values and how they run themselves, and and stuff like that, when you look at Dukat and Q, you see Q as a bit more of a foil than a villain, and you see Goldukat a bit more of a villain than a foil. But they both occupy those both both of those titles really really well, and. Yeah, he is. He is the best Star Trek villain. He he has to be. And it's because he had so much time to bake properly and and he he emerged as this great villain in the end. And I feel like every single night the casting people for for Deep Space 9 should be falling asleep counting their blessings that they got Marco Limo to do it because man that guy is a salty actor. Man, he's good. And for those of you who are in attendance, I'm sure everybody remembers that moment when uh, after the airing of Far Beyond the Stars, he's on stage and he says, uh, well, we're cops and yes, we shot a black man, but at least we didn't shoot him from the back oh. in his uh, hoodie six times. That was such a, that just goes to show what kind of an incredible actor he is and not just the casting people. I, for one, am very lucky that he got to do it. So Barry, as a reward for you agreeing with me, I'm going to let you pick number 17 on the list. That is the nicest thing anyone's ever done to me. <laughs> So I'm just going to keep this running with, uh, we were talking about that whole group of people at the Far Beyond the Stars panel, and uh, we're going to rub the nose of anyone who didn't go to STLV into this a lot because we went there and it was loads of fun. So it's got to be the writers themselves, right? You know, like, what can I honestly say about Ira Stephen Bear other than just how incredibly amazing the the world that he helped create that he put into motion it's oh my gosh like i definitely have to give rick berman and michael pillar obviously the cred for coming up with the idea itself but getting iris steven bear on there and what he did and his his little you know revolutionary thing he did with it like he's got that that sort of sense to him and just just even starting there right we see how amazing it it truly was and michael pillar obviously that guy is is he he makes lightning in a bottle seem easy michael pillar again also brings a amazing tact to deep space nine and and he sets he sort of sets it up and to use a 90s sort of reference michael pillar laces the track and then iris Stephen bear locks the flow and it was a, a beautiful moment now of course we've got uh renee um echevarria we've got uh ron d moore who's in there as well i mean ron d moore was was fantastic um we've got hans beimler uh robert hewitt wolf all of these fantastic people who just created an amazing series and i feel like i'm stumbling over myself because there's so many so much i want to say but uh, yeah that, that would be a big one yeah every time you say writers uh no matter who you talk about the show has so many good episodes that you can't help but enjoy everything that the writers brought to a table what i wouldn't give as a writer to be in that writer's room it that would have been a dream come true but it's interesting that there are so many really cool facets about the show. There is that deep, real 
Star Trek politics that the show goes into with uh, incredible episodes like Homefront. And then you have episodes like Far Beyond the Stars that say a lot directly about the world that we live in today. And then you have episodes like Sword of Kalis and Sons of Mog that go so deep into Klingon mythology, a species that doesn't exist. And you you fall in love with the mythological aspect of the show. And I also think that the writing is particularly good, uh, not just because it excels on that episode level, but even in scenes, just the opening scene of In the Pale Moonlight or that one scene at Quark's where Quark and Garrick talk about root beer. Just from a scene to an episode to an opening to an overarching plot thread, those writers are incredible. And I don't think we'll, we'll ever have a more challenged, more competing, fighting to get to the top writers who end up giving us some of the best television that will ever be made. So, yep, that was a great one, man. So it is time for our Sweet 16. And of course, you're the homecoming queen. What's number six? <laughs> In keeping with our one-ups about the the segues, number, number 16 is going to be sweet, or maybe not so sweet when it comes to things like, uh, we just talked about it. Number 16 for me is how good the Klingons are on Deep Space Nine. Uh, not because they're they're particularly any any more toned in or they're particularly different or interesting when it comes to the how they interact with other species on the show. But I love that Rondi Moore pretty much reinvented Klingons. He gave us a an invigorated, a revitalized interest in Klingons and Klingon mythology. As I was just saying, Sword of Kalis. I can sit and watch Sword of Kalis. Uh, so just over and over and over. And I don't need to know anything about that show to know that that is just an incredible episode. That is a metaphor for people having lost their way, people inventing lies and religions like they do around the world. And uh, how Worf ties that in so well when we start with him in the way of the warrior. And you you get to see that character get a second life on the show. We think he's done with on TNG and then he comes back and he cements himself as not only an incredible character, but someone who can hold, hold his own against uh, titans like Cisco and Kira. And it's because he has that heavy mythology. And then you get to see someone integrate into the world of the Klingons, like Jadzia, who falls in love with Worf. And then you get to see that side of the story. So Klingons, though not just the not just particularly because of the, the way they interact, but because we actually get to see so much about the 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 world that they live in. We get to see about Kronos, we get to see about the rituals, we get to see the things that Worf has to do as he accepts that side of himself more and more. And uh, on a side note, I don't think we would have gotten the really rich, incredible looking Klingons in Star Trek Discovery if it wasn't for Deep Space Nine and Ron Moore making their best to give that, that species a mythology. You can totally see the influence of the Deep Space Nine Klingon on the Discovery Klingon. You're absolutely right. And that that adherence to honor and the religiosity did not exist before it got into the hands of people like Rondi Moore. And I will say this to the ends of the earth. 
Though he may not have writing credits for the Klingons, Michael Dorn made the Klingons what they are. He took the characterization that the writers had, and he made that real. He did the extra work of embodying the idea and the direction that the Klingons took. So, yes, bringing Michael Dorn back as Worf for the majority of the series was wonderful because you did get to see his character grow even more. And it was good it was good that he kind of got to be the new almost data, right? Data was always searching to be human and now you've got Worf searching to be Klingon in in such a in such a very sort of actualizing kind of Hegelian way. And then, you know, lump lump that into him marrying Jadzia and and that's whole 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 piece of it where she's accepting the culture and it's this great way for us as viewers to get even deeper into the klingon mythology i mean i think that has to be some of the some of the best reasons why klingon is such a robust language and all these sorts of things so yeah no you're you're 100% correct barry here is the million slips of latinum question what's number 15 on the list you say i'm going to get locks of latin of latinum <laughs> Yes. I'd prefer Kror, but I'll take Lux, truly. Nice. <laughs> it's it's speaking of, of money and stuff, I'm gonna sit myself down at the at the bar and have a nice long conversation with Morn. I love his running gag. I, I it doesn't need to be there. There's no real purpose for it. It's one hundred percent just the writers and the actors just having having a laugh. Like they're just totally being like I don't know. There's just something about Morn throughout the entire the entire series. And again, this is a nod to Cheers. And even he kind of looks like Norm from Cheers. And it's just so extremely perfect. There isn't really much else to say about this. But if, you know, you take that Western idea and stuff like that, this this goes right back to the earliest pieces of, of television and stuff with these little running gags that make their way through an entire series. And this is a drama series as well. So to have this little piece of humor... And just the constant, the constant, just return to him as a character is uh, is beautiful. It's so much fun, and it, it lightens things up, and it uh, it just shows that though it's a serious series, they don't always have to take themselves seriously. Interesting note. Uh, as you were talking about Norm from Cheers, did you ever notice that Mon is an anagram for Norm? Absolutely. And I'm sure that was intentional too. I I bet the. <laughs> actor who played uh, Morn sat down every day for that elaborate makeup job that I'm sure would have taken hours upon hours just to sit down at that bar and be a glorified extra. Like that's that's really what that character is. Uh, and the, at least when the show starts out, he's just an extra. He's just there in the background. But the coolest thing about Morn is he ends up being one of the one of the integral parts of the show and things that uh, keeps it light and fresh, even though he never says a word. People talk about Mon. They talk about how he can't shut up. A beautiful woman show up and they go, oh yeah, I used to be engaged to Mon. And you want, what what just happened? What universe am I in? Well. <laughs> and uh, all of that culminates when you see who moans for Mon. And uh, he, he gets an entire episode to himself. So that was a great one, man. Mon is definitely an, an intriguing, fascinating part of that show. Did you know that Morn's first appearance was in Birthright Part 1 of Star Trek The Next Generation? No, I did not. That's a, that's a really cool piece of trivia. Yeah, pretty crazy. But anyways, Mark Allen Shepard, everyone. 
14 only comes around once in this list, so I'm expecting you to make it good, Mr. Avaru. I think I'm going to make it uh, I'm going to make it the best. We have been singing through this list so far, so it 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 only seems right to point out that number 14 on the list is the theme sp- the theme song of Deep Space 9. I it's my personal favorite of all the theme songs. Uh, it, I can almost play that and I do play it as my alarm tone. It's a really good tone to wake up to every morning and uh, I know it went into a bit of a revitalization I want to say around season 4 or 5 I could be getting that wrong but uh, the the fact that there is those incredible high notes in there and uh, the way it starts off with that uh, even, even the visuals are are so good about the uh, the theme song when you get to see uh, deep space nine from afar and then you bring it in it's so fascinating and the way the music plays it's perfect it it this it, it describes that show so so well and uh, i don't know i don't know if there is they will ever come up with a better theme song no no disrespect intended to any of the other ones i'm sure the classic is a big favorite but Deep Space Nine's theme song all the way, man. Well, I always think of that as very much like the outpost, right? The the American Western outpost on the on the Rocky Mountains in Wyoming kind of thing. It's the last one before you end up in in Crow territory kind of thing. And it's the morning bugler, right? It's very sort of I don't know, it, it's a frontiery kind of song, right? It's a it's a triumphal sort of we've harnessed nature and now find ourselves in the far reaches and the step of, of this great plateau kind of thing. It, it really does. It reminds me, it, when I first heard it, it reminded me of kind of a, a sort of a lonesome dove kind of Western. Dennis McCarthy gets a lot of credit for, or rightly so, for being such a big part of the music of Star Trek. But this, I think, is one of his uh, crowning achievements. And... Again, another rubbing it in thing <laughs> for people who didn't attend STLV. You got to see this clip where uh, they they pay tribute to Dennis McCarthy when they're talking about the music of Star Trek, and this this theme song shows why it's a it's a beautiful theme song. So that's that's number fourteen on the list. Barry, you're lucky, or I should say unlucky, for getting number thirteen on the list. What's number thirteen, man? Well, I thought I would just go right directly to the Last Supper here with the idea of there being 13 numbers left in this list. And I'm going to go with Star Trek's use of religion. This is not common in previous Star Trek. So for Star Trek Deep Space Nine to really go into the religious aspect and, and show its place within society and within people's lives and how it can affect people differently and all of the, the politics that that surround it right you see bajoran religion you see a much more religious style of of klingon and of course we do see that even stronger in uh, in discovery and you get to see the religiosity of of the vorta towards the founders and that sort of almost fanatical religious undertones of the Jem'Hadar. And of course, finally, you have the Ark of Sisko being a religious person without even knowing it, right? He is called to action, right? He is he is sort of like future Moses in some cases in that sense, where he didn't even know he had that royalty to him, right? He didn't know his mother was actually one of these entities or had one of these entities in her and stuff. It, it's a 
it's a very interesting sort of connection I make that is very Old Testament-y, you know, kind of style to it. And I've, you know, Avery Brooks takes that religiosity, that man's got soul, right? Like even his, even when he, like he could read, he could read the phone book to me anytime he wants, because his voice is just so amazing. But he has almost a preacher's vibe to him when he really gives these larger talks and stuff like that. Would you agree? I, I absolutely agree, Barry. And uh, just to add to the beautiful points you bring up, you also get to see money as religion when you when you see how the Ferengis work. And it's almost it's almost blasphemous to them that somebody would get a discount or somebody would, would get a fair deal. It's funny on the surface, but when you see capitalism as religion, there is a really interesting fanatical aspect to that too. And as a Hindu or someone who was raised Hindu, I, I saw a lot of uh, Hinduism in the Bajoran people, the way they work, the way they have orbs and how they worship idols and just so many really cool metaphors there. But uh, even the founders, when you think about it, when you go to the the planet of the founders, the place itself looks really religious. It looks it looks like something out of myth, especially when uh, they're in the middle of that ocean, and it just or when you go into the 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 beautiful vast endless greenery of the place, and you see Odo falling in love with that place, and just uh, the there are so many really great aspects of religion and the show does not take a side on it. It actually shows you how religion can be good because Kira is such a devoted Bajoran who loves a religion. And then you have characters who are not religious at all, like Odo, who end up finding something about themselves and they reject it in favor of humanity. So it doesn't take a side. It actually lets you make your own decision. And I think that's one of the show's greatest strengths is it, by staying neutral and just devoting itself to the story aspect of of religion, it does so well on all accounts. Twelve Bells and <laughs> has some more awesomeness for us. Well, this is going to come up on one of our lists, so I might as well get to it because I know if I, I don't, you will. Number 12 is, uh, is going to be dedicated to one of the finest arts of television uh, far beyond the stars. I don't think there is uh, there is anything more that I really can say that hasn't already been said about that episode. But by taking itself away from starships and planets and every dopey little science thing that we nerds care about and forcing us to look at uh, something really, really deep and rooted to the world that we live in and giving us a really good story out of it. Uh, and making us wonder about the nature of reality by doing all those things at once, far beyond the stars, is far and away, no pun intended, one of the best hours of television. I think you can have that pun. Also, I hate you right now because that was my next pick. So um, I tell you. <laughs> I'm, I told you, man. I told you one of us was going to get what to it. A guy. No, this is my favorite hour of Star Trek. And I know others have said The Visitor. And yeah, that's <laughs> that That might come up. Um, but uh, yeah, Far Beyond the Stars, It's when you see the pieces that make up Benny Russell, you definitely see little bits of Malcolm X and little bits of Martin Luther King and the plight and the push and the fight that African-American people had to take to even just be people, right? I would highly recommend to people who can 
handle, you know, violence, real violence, to watch a documentary called Made in America, The Crips and the Bloods. And even if you just watch the first act where they talk about when they were young in the 1950s, these uh, young or now, I guess, older black men talking about the the different groups that they would, uh, these clubs that they would create that eventually would sort of provide the framework for gangs in the future. And it had so much to do with the idea that they were like, this one guy just like rattles off everything about the Boy Scouts. And then he goes, so when I was a kid, my mom took me to the the local group of the Boy Scouts and they said, you know, you can't, you can't come in because you're black. And then he's like, yeah, truth, justice, blah, 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 honesty. Yeah, the Boy Scouts, bunch of racists. And you're just like, whoa, you, like, that's insane. But it's true, because like, they, they didn't get the chance to be people in the same sort of way. And Far Beyond the Stars just, just hits you so hard. And, and watching that breakdown that Benny Russell has at the end, it's so incredibly powerful and then finding out that that was a second take that that (laughs) poor Avery Brooks had to do that over again but he had so much gravitas and so much power and strength and honor while doing it uh I can't say enough about this could be just one episode it should be one episode. we should come back to this Barry those are great points uh we love so much about Deep Space Nine that I bet somewhere along uh, 25 things that we love about the show we lost a number so I'm sure either we'll go back and edit it or we'll add something at the end. Or maybe it's like a really cool Patreon extra where people sign up for 25 <laughs> and they only hear 24 things. But either Find way, the missing number. <laughs> yeah, either way, we've got to leave all of this on the recording just to show you how unprofessional we are. And yes, please yell at us on Twitter. We'll, we'll enjoy that quite a bit. But not to, not to waste any more time. Barry, for all those wonderful points, you get to pick number 11. 11 is great because it is the concept of post-occupation anywhere and the amounts of strange things that come of it, the amount of just different things that, that, that you now have to re reassociate yourself with day-to-day life becomes more day-to-day and you start living outside of a trauma, right? Bajor was a, a planet being abused. It was put under a type of trauma. And it's a trauma that you can't just walk away from. And I, I sort of think like, imagine being in like a really long hospital stay or being in prison for a really long time. Re-associating yourself to things that you wouldn't have had before is extremely difficult. And it can there can be almost an identity crisis. And you see Bajor sort of go through with that. And you see the power politics of Kai Wynn coming through and, and edging out other people, other Vedics to to take the position of Kai. And you can see that again in Kira. Again, I'm not talking about her as a revolutionary in this sense, but basically as someone who is trying to reassert her identity as a Bajoran, because that was taken for such a long period of time. And I mean, when you see Rolaren uh, Ro show up in, in the next generation, obviously, she shows up with this chip on her shoulder, you know, representing the the Bajorans and, and who they are and how they are and stuff like that. It's, um, it is a fascinating thing to see the fact that the Federation, in its benign, I guess, ways, it, it decides to 
not help in anything but the refacilitation of a society out of a occupation. And in that sense, they almost become occupiers or sort of work as sort of a adjunct or benign occupier. Does that make sense? It does. And I think uh, in, a, in a weird way, the Federation with its access to everything in the universe, it literally has gone to farther than anybody has gone in the universe, right? And still it is bound by the prime directive. It is bound to only refacilitate. It is only bound to, it is bound only to stop after that facilitation is done. Here's a question for our listeners. I'd love to listen to people shout out their answers. In that way, in that regard alone, from the point that Barry is bringing, do you think prime directive is really the most useful way to go about it? Or do you think in situations like where Kaiwin is just taking over and Cisco can do nothing but watch, do you think the prime directive would need to be tweaked? Or maybe there should be a directive that should allow them to intervene in such situations and really look out for the good of the people. What, what do our listeners think? I'd, I, I'd really be interested in knowing that. Yeah, the prime directive is a hot mess. But <laughs> <laughs> anyways... We're at we're at ten. We're at the final countdown. Na 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 na. We should just do that for the rest of the episode because it's such a good song. But uh, you know, in lists, when they come up with lists, often number ten is really the throwaway. They just it's often the most overlooked, and that's why number ten, I think, fittingly, is going to be my pick for some of the most overlooked stuff about the show. And that's all the background elements of Deep Space Nine. The people walking around that you'll never know their names of on the promenade. The music that plays when they engage the communicator. Everything about that show that is in the background that you never care to look at again. The elevator sound when they go up from one level to another. The Jeffrey's tube sound when O'Brien pops open a hatch. The music, the sets, the extras, some of them who never speak, literally like Mon, even though we talked about Mon. The background people, the people that really make it come alive. And uh, the, the, to the unsung heroes, much like number 10 on most lists, this number 10 will be dedicated to the background elements of Deep Space Nine. I like that. I have, I've always um, I always found myself scanning the um, scanning the consoles because they were Cardassian buttons, and I always find that kind of interesting. And it makes me think of typewriters. So I know you're not like you're saying like the background people and things and all that little bit. And I'm really honing in on a on a obsession that I've always sort of had. I have an obsession with different types of keyboards and like how that would like mess with your brain for such a long time to switch to a different type of keyboard. And the keyboard we have is actually designed in a way to slow your writing down or your typing down because this was designed to slow down the hammers on the, the typewriter because we can in fact type faster than a ha those little metal hammers could swing. Uh, that might not be the real name for it, and I refuse to Google it. They're just now called typewriter hammers. And if someone wants to, <laughs> if someone wants to at me about that, you go right ahead. Anyways, um, I, there's these other other key um, uh, organizations that that is always really interesting to watch. All these other arrays of keys and how they are. And I often thought like that that must be crazy. Imagine like being upset with yourself, being like, oh, I'm transferring to Deep Space Nine, and they use this completely different 
layout it's 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 wholly alien to me and yet people just seem to sort of switch over to it really really fast it's sort of like maybe maybe it it, it as a political bent it could show that that, that windows and, and mac can really work side by side <laughs> uh, at, at this point on a, on a separate note we have said people to at us so many times now i'd just be offended if nobody added us please add us but, lonely uh, <laughs> uh barry what's number nine on the list now well number nine and, and and this is actually something that i've always really liked deep space nine bottle episodes are the creme de la creme of vanity projects i find like if you think about these unconnected episodes that just come out of nowhere ones that come to mind immediately for me are like bada bing bada bang holy cow it's <laughs> just a total hollow sweet episode <laughs> or or the, yeah you're you're right I, i'm blanking on the name of it but when they get stuck in the pattern buffer and have to end up on the holodeck all of them to to keep their patterns alive for a period of time and they're all like james bond villains and stuff like that again just they they just find the best possible reason to do it and then just go ahead the writers seem to they're like i want to do a, a I, i'm just obsessed with the 1960s vegas crooners so i'm just going to shoehorn this character in and we're just going to have fun with him for the rest <laughs> of the season and he's one of the best characters and it blows your mind that that's the sense right and they got jimmy freaking darren to do it right like he was on like um um what was it called the the one with bill shatner um tj hooker boston legal no no T- boston tj hooker and he's he's a really good singer right like he's amazing and and there he is just way way back in the day playing with like heather locklear and um and and william shatner and yeah he's one of the best characters but then like other bottle episodes that just blow your mind like trials and tribulations where they went through all of this trouble to do this little bottle episode that really it's it's a throwaway like there's it it advances nothing it's literally just a, let's take a break from this like horrifying dominion arc but then you go even further back to like move along home and you're just like what the heck is going on like what are they <laughs> thinking but at the same time we just talk about these bottle episodes all the time when my dog come running at me when i come home i always shout a la marine <laughs> so it's yeah i don't know it's uh, it's a thing the vanity projects does seem like a really cool deviation to go through but i'm glad that they did it because uh, in a weird vicarious way i got to see my brown james bond when i got to see dr bashir uh go into the holodeck he was living out his vanity which is absolutely the point of what he's doing. That's not even hidden in anywhere. Uh, so the big connection that I have to those vanity projects is I'm so glad they did it because I got to see a Brown James Bond years before we could even get one. And now literally decades before we could get one because people are still talking about whether the next one should maybe be a uh, not white. So n- number nine is a great, great segue into number eight. And number eight for me is Dr. Julian Bashir. Hmm. Dr. Bashir, or Julian, as I lovingly call him, is one of uh, the most interesting characters in all of Star Trek. I know he's not on everyone's top lists, and I get that. Because to a large amount of the viewing audience, I'm sure people gave up on him being a really cool character when they found out they tried to make him like data where he was genetically mutated by his parents. I'm sure there's a lot of conflict that that goes into when people watch that. But to me, on a personal level, having a brown lead in a show 
a show and in a franchise that I love was a huge deal to me. And that I got to see that not just in one episode or two episodes, but over an entire show and even let that bleed into TNG for a couple of episodes that I got to see Dr. Julian's Bashir arc from when he steps in in the pilot and says frontier medicine. And that's what he wants to pursue to when he sits down and cries when he talks about how he was genetically mutated as a character. And then when you see him being forced to save his best friend when they're holed up in a prison to when you see him be uh, James Bond on holodeck, the many, many shades of Dr. Julian Bashir is going to be number eight on this list. Well, Julian Bashir really is a just amazing character he's got a uh, i don't know he, he's got this this kitschy outlook that he thinks he's just in this amazing place and all that sort of stuff but later he becomes less of a bit of a jerk almost i wonder um i mean i don't know it's not that he's a jerk he's just got this kind of wide-eyed look and it he matures in in such a neat way throughout the entire series and yeah, he kind of gets that little extra bit when he when people find out that he's genetically enhanced and stuff. And I feel like that's that's kind of where where Bashir becomes really cool, I guess is the best way to put it. Hey, if you're sitting across uh the blackjack table from Mr. from Dr. Bashir, would you like a 7? Would that make your odds better? I don't know what you mean because I've I, I've been to Vegas twice and I've never gambled. Um <laughs> I know seven is shows up a lot the most if you roll two dice, but that's all I really got. So if he asked me if I wanted a seven, I would assume he's offering me pop, but I'm probably wrong. So number seven is pretty simple. It's the Defiant, um, a warship, right? A true warship. It was made, it was, a, it, you know, it, it is sort of this, like the frigate of death, right? If we think of all of the different, all of the different Federation ships as different types of battleships or carriers or, or whatever, you know, these exploration vessels, the Defiant is not designed for exploration. It is designed for one thing, and that is battle. Battle with the Borg originally, and I've always loved the Defiant patch where it shows it almost kind of like a shark, very sort of 1940 style, and it's saying underneath isn't anything, you know, to bold Lego or anything. It's just assimilate this. <laughs> and I always really liked that. I don't know if that's can uh, canonical or not, but it always made me laugh. And, you know, looking at this ship and the way it is, it's, it's created, it's ugly as hell. And I remember looking at it the first time. And I, I think because I was so young when TNG came out and they had their, everyone freaked out over the Enterprise D, I always just sort of knew it to be the Enterprise D and that was it. Like I just accepted it because I was so small when TNG first came out. But when the Defiant showed up, I was like, really, this is it? But now, like, I mean, I'm I'm literally staring at my 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 copy of the Eagle Moss model, and I, I just love it. I just love this ship. It, it says a lot about the Federation, though, sociopolitically, because they are an exploration group, and the Borg spooked them so much that they ended up having to build a warship over it, and then they use it, and they use it with impunity within the uh, within the arc of of deep space nine that it really shows this other side of the Federation, much like you talked about uh, section 31. I feel like the defiant kind of fits in there too, because this isn't a ship that is going to offer a helping hand. This ship's going to blow your face off and that's what it's for. It's very, very fascinating. 
just a, a couple of things to add, a uh, little piece of trivia. I don't know if a lot of people know. The Defiant is, I believe, the first animated starship in all of the franchise. It's the first ship to have purely existed on a digital animation alone. Before that, they used a mix of models and animation, but this is the first one to be entirely animation only. So there's a piece of trivia. And I think, in my opinion, The Defiant apart from being a really cool warship, it's also a great uh, platform for telling those uh, more go out on a ship and do your exploration stories that we had, that we fall in love with, with TNG and the Ursul series. You get to see uh, Cisco go out there and be the captain. You get to see Worf go out there and be the captain to a point where he almost becomes obsessed with being on that ship and that's all that he wants to do all the time. Uh, you get to see it as a really cool platform for telling those ship stories. If uh, Deep Space Nine, the station is about being on the shore, defiant is what happens when your ship goes, when your ship leaves the shore and goes into the ocean. And it's it's this really tiny uh, yet incredibly powerful ship that leaves a mark on the 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 overarching war and definitely us as the viewer. It's a good ship. It's a mighty good ship. Well, six, six. Here we are. We're at number six. What do you got for me, Shashank? Well, it was it was a bit of a challenge to get to this point. I think it was a it was it was a it was definitely a struggle. It was a trial. Number six. You guessed it. Is Another episode dedication number six is completely, entirely, unequivocally dedicated to trials and tribulations. There is no funnier episode to me in Deep Space Nine because there are so many hilarious things that, that happen uh, that people just walk away from they, because the whole... Uh, the whole story is so fascinating, but when <laughs> when Bashir says, I'm a doctor, not a historian, there is such a reference to the old the original series and another famous doctor from that ship and uh, just little funny things like that. That uh, And when uh, what still boggles me to this day, that uh, Jadzia remarks that Spock looks handsome and today... Terry Farrell's married to Adam Nimoy, that I will never get over that. So just for that alone, number six is Trials and Tribulations. Yeah, it is such a good episode. And I mean, I had been watching the original series for so much longer, obviously. Uh, it showed up on uh, on a couple of different TV shows, and I'm trying to remember which or TV stations, and I'm trying to remember which ones it was, but I can't for the life of me. I just remember watching them in my grandparents' basement. And I remember that episode of deep space nine coming in, I felt like they were very faithful to a lot of, a lot of that original stuff. And, you know, it, it was done sort of as a, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, kind of a, a vanity product project idea, but they do, they do have a lot of crazy, awesome references and yeah, for the predictability of things. I don't know if Terry Farrell and Adam Nimoy were dating at the time that would make more sense, but if they weren't, or if they had never met yet, that, uh, that would be terrifyingly awesome, cool, scary all at the same time. Well, for adding such incredible, wonderful points, you get to pick number five. Well, number five, you know, if I was to place myself anywhere within the Deep Space Nine canon or the way Deep Space Nine has sort of built itself into what it what it 
ultimately has become for us, it has to be the Dominion War arc itself. We literally see the material conditions that create a war. We watch that war carry itself out. We watch the darker elements of how that war eventually finally gets its upper hand and we see its almost ignominious end that the gamma quadrant the dominion thread in the gamma quadrant really isn't fully gone and not everything is perfectly resolved and no relationships are a hundred percent and it's just so incredibly fascinating watching this entire arc start and it takes us all the way to the other side. It really does kind of give you a weird, vicarious look into what it must be like to to live through a war. And I mean, no, obviously, I don't think it gives you an actual feeling of it. But it, it takes a franchise we love, and it puts it through a war. And we have to sit there and watch as people die, as things change, as things get worse. You know, all of these pieces. It's a it was a it was a bold move. It was a bold act. And I really think it set the tone for TV uh, moving forward. If uh, if nothing else, outside of being a, a really cool arc and something that shows you what it means to be in war, absolutely, something that shows you what it, what it is like to go through a conflict in which there are so many layers uh, upon layers of right and wrong, the greatest thing, I think, to me, that the Dominion War accomplished was it showed me just how powerful conflict can be. On the one hand, you have a character like Odo who has been looking his entire life to find his people. And he does find his people, but he finds that these people are the people that are hurting the people that have been with him all along. And then you get to see this person try to decide what is it, how do I even begin to choose a side here? And you get to see that play out. And on a political level, you get to see the conflict of Benjamin Sisko throughout the show, but especially in In the Pale Moonlight. You get to see that culminate there where you see a leader compromising, losing those morals and coming to terms with what reality is and where to leave his idealism. So those really interesting, powerful conflicts are to me one of the crowning achievements of the Dominion War. Outside of the incredible character moments, the wonderful war that we get to see, the really cool animation and the the way it plays out and how you see some people stick stick with it to the end and how there is a there is an other aspect to the war with the Bajorans and the the people that are suffering, just so many incredible things outside of all of that. The conflict is what really drives it home for me. Couldn't have said it better, sir. So Number four, this is you. Number four is Cardassian Nazism. I think the the Cardassians are a really, really well done metaphor for the Nazis. Of course, they're they're metaphors for oppression and and racism and uh, the the Russian era. Uh, propaganda machines that ran i mean for god's sake they run they decide a person's judgment uh for a sin before they're an actual trial that 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 is so twisted and uh, ridiculous it only could have come out of the the nazi handbook the fact that not just that but you actually get to see a full-blown occupation of a people much like the the jewish people you get to see 
Bejor suffered for 50 years under the the Cardassians, and you get and you, in spite of that, you get to see in episodes that Gul Dukat, while doing his oppression, when they go back into uh, when they go into fa- flashbacks, Gul Dukat is sitting there in the chair, the guy who's running the oppression, saying, you know, in spite of what you hear about me, I'm a friendly man, I'm a fair man. I don't know how people get that mindset. Uh, but I'm when I went back and read some of the logs from survivors uh, that got to interact with uh, with people at the forefront of the Nazi party running around doing these horrendous things. Sure enough, they were people who were out there in, in secret and in one-on-one conversations saying, hey, you know, in spite of what people think, I'm a good person. I'm a fair man. This is fair. So there are these really wonderful metaphors there. Uh, and such wonderful parallels and the the moral lessons that are there for us to learn and and drag from that it's it's incredible and i i can't believe that it's such a it's just a great metaphor full agreement i mean watching watching even you know going back to goldacott really quick you get to see what a nazi has to do post nazism right like how do they how do they reassert themselves and and goldacott definitely takes a certain direction basically by doubling down on justifying his previous actions so absolutely and maybe to a degree sort of watching if you want to take that kind of more Nazi Germany, post-Nazi Germany style, you can sort of even see that, that look of, you know, what, what do we do now? Like what direction do we want to head in? And I think they'd take a different direction from post-Nazi Germany, but um, no, it's quite fascinating. And then watching them become the oppressed later on, it's, uh, it's also sort of an interesting different take. And it's not one I don't think we we've seen very often in, in different types of uh, story arcs before. Well, uh, we're getting down here. We're winding down. Uh, Barry, what's number three? It, it can be difficult to to come up with thing after thing after thing after thing and think that you're going to be able to say very much or or nothing at all about it. But um, this one doesn't. This may feel like I'm grasping at straws, but I'm, I really don't feel like I am. Think about the the costuming in this entire show and think of the way that that costuming works to contrast and to to show difference and culture and different nuances and all these different things right like you think of quark and garrick and just the 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 very fancy outfits that they have obviously i would say that quark's is a lot more flamboyant and garrick's uh, outfits are a lot more austere but someone had to make all that someone had to put all that together that was a ton of creativity when you look at the the almost recoiling feeling of watching the dabo girls right and and these these sort of skin suits they had the actresses wear that look or seem like they're quite scantily clad i mean goodness that's a a very strange and odd way of of kind of evoking the male gaze but we know what what that means and i think that was done on purpose like nothing against any of the female actors who have played and had to wear a very form-fitting uniform but notice how you don't see that in deep space nine your strong female leads are wearing functional outfits for the most part as far as i can recall 
throughout my uh, my entire time. So the costuming has a political piece to it as well. The way people are dressed is is very intentional, and there's a lot more to it, right? You look at Worf, he's, you know, the switchover from his, his two different badges. Um, that's a very fascinating kind of look at, at how he transitions or you look at the transition of the uniform and I know they made the Starfleet uniform look more movie movie fancy with the, the gray yoked one which is always going to be a favorite of mine because I think it just looks badass and it's the only uniform I don't own so that's fine but you know you think about the the perfection and the honing of the Cardassian uniform and how people in Cardassia look and how they dress it, the, the way culture is is ascertained through clothing and cloth and the way story gets built up through the clothing and cloth that, that cover the people we, we enjoy. It, it's very fascinating. It's, it's a very, I mean, we, we could just talk about Garrick's clothes or what Jake wears or, you know, even even sort of the portrayal of the Dabo girls. It's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know if there is anything else I can add to that. You covered that so well, buddy. <laughs> so I'm just going to move on to number two. Fair enough. Number two. I'm I'm glad this is my last one on the list. It's going to be ridiculous, or maybe it's something that everybody loves already. Uh, number two for me, Ferengis. I love that this show reinvented them. This show gave them a second chance from everything to the rules of acquisition to the really powerful single episodes and the arc that Quark goes through to even the much bigger, funnier arcs of, hey, uh, rules of acquisition and the way that plays in, to uh, just the, we've covered so much of it already when we talked about the Ferengis, but my favorite thing uh, about the Ferengis on the show is that they're such a good metaphor for humans. Uh, They're such an exaggerated yet really wonderful metaphor for how humans are and how uh, we work as a, species and how much we value capitalism that we've talked about before obviously but uh the whimsicalness the 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 entertainment factor the underlying intelligence of it all for that and many many reasons number two is Ferengis for me so i would say that their love of capitalism is actually sort of the poke at modern or contemporary humans and it is for us to look at some of the absurdities of the value value judgments we place on on things and the commodification of of resources and stuff like that. Um, I agree, though, that that the the arc of the Ferengi is is again, you know, I've said we could watch this entire series just through the eyes of Kira, and that would be a unwasted series. This could have been something, I mean, it fits well as a mini-series within the series. So yeah, the Ferengi are so incredibly fascinating. Well, we're here, we're at number one, Barry. What's number one on the list, man? Tell us. Oh, well, I don't know. I feel like we've we've gone through so many different things um, that... That I don't really, um, I don't really feel qualified to say that this is the best one, and maybe it isn't the best one of our points that we've had. I mean, we're not, we're not doing not at all. No, we're not, we're not ranking our treks here. If you want to do that, you can listen to Shashank and me do that on the politics episode. Um, For me, it's just the influence itself of Deep Space Nine, the fact that so many people call this the dark horse or the you know the the snotty nosed redhead kid brother of of the series and stuff, and it ends up being the most 
the most loved. I mean, so many people I know love DS9 the most, and there's got to be a reason for it. And if you look at the serialized nature of TV these days, if you look at the shocking moments that can take place, like when that Jem'Hadar cruiser flew into that Galaxy-class ship, right into its deflector, blowing itself up and everything else, like... You didn't see that very often before in Star Trek. I mean, TOS, I think there was a lot more of those kind of holy crap moments that I think would have happened back then. But this, that really was like a, a whoa, whoa, what the crap? What's going on here? Or you look at the the ideas of, of them creating a, the conditions for what, what would create the Bell Riots. And that's influenced the way uh, the American government's trying to run itself now. Um, if you think about it, it's... It's simultaneously something that brings me pride, and it's also something that's kind of got me rolling my eyes now because I feel like the the, the style that Deep Space Nine, um, I would say um, Battlestar Galactica, Battle Babylon Five, also sort of took a bit of this as well. I'm almost rolling my eyes at the idea of that kind of film or that kind of storytelling. But boy, when when Deep Space Nine came to the fore, its shock value and some of the stuff that it did really is what made it so amazing because it made us see a very different Federation. And I think it made us consume our sci-fi a lot differently. After Deep Space Nine, I was getting into anime, cyberpunk, you know, watching Ghost in the Shell or Akira, just just to name a few and and i think about my development politically um i think a lot of the reasons why i have traveled down this path i have has to do with my experience with deep space nine i couldn't have said it any better and you keep you keep putting me in these spots where i don't have a whole lot to say but uh i think there is nothing i'll say will rival what he just said so that was a great closer to our 25 things we love about ds9 we hope you enjoyed it we'd love to see some of your own uh, lists nothing to steal from trek ranks i promise just throw things you love about ds9 things we might have missed things you thought we were just bragging on about and just all around Thanks for uh, joining us. Thanks for enjoying this part of the show. These are lists uh, or these kinds of things are stuff that we love coming up with. It's a little lighthearted and uh, it's definitely a break from the really deep, serious stuff we do. So thank you for joining us and let us know if you'd like us to do more of these or maybe less of these. Either way, I don't see us stopping in any way. Do I, are we going to stop, Barry? I thought I told you that we won't stop that we won't stop thank you yeah <laughs> okay. just just making sure okay. so un- until uh, until next time live long and prosper and onward to our star society <laughs> <laughs>